Section 4 of My Life in the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Kennelly. My Life in the South by Jacob Stroyer. Chapter 2 Sketches. Part 1 The Sale of My Two Sisters. I have stated that my father had fifteen children, four boys and three girls by his first wife, and six boys and two girls by his second. Their names are as follows, Tony, Azarine, Duke, and Dezine, of the girls, Violet, Priscilla, and Lydia. Those of the second wife as follows, Footy, Ambrose, Caleb, Mitchell, Cuffy, and Jacob, who is the author, and the girls, Catherine and Retta. As I have said, old Colonel Dick Singleton had two sons and two daughters, and each had a plantation. Their names were John, Matt, Mariana, and Angelico. They were very agreeable together, so that if one wanted Negro help from another's plantation, he or she could have it, especially in cotton-picking time. John Singleton had a place about twenty miles from Master's, and Master used to send him slaves to pick cotton. At one time my master, Colonel M. R. Singleton, sent my two sisters, Violet and Priscilla, to his brother, John, and while they were there they married two of the men on his place. By mutual consent, master allowed them to remain on his brother's place. But some time after this, John Singleton had some of his property destroyed by water, as is often the case in the south at the time of the May freshets, what is known in the north as high tides. One of these freshets swept away John Singleton's slave houses, his barns, with horses, mules, and cows. These caused his death by a broken heart, and since he owed a great deal of money, his slaves had to be sold. A Mr. Manning bought a portion of them, and Charles Logan the rest. These two men were known as the greatest slave traders in the South. My sisters were among the number that Mr. Manning bought. He was to take them into the state of Louisiana for sale. But some of the men did not want to go with him, and he put those in prison until he was ready to start. My sister's husbands were among the prisoners in the Sumterville jail, which was about twenty-five or thirty miles across the river from Master's place. Those who did not show any unwillingness to go were allowed to visit their relatives and friends for the last time. So my sisters, with the rest of their unfortunate companions, came to Master's place to visit us. When the day came for them to leave, some who seemed to have been willing to go at first refused and were handcuffed together and guarded on their way to the cars by white men. The women and children were driven to the depot in crowds, like so many cattle, and the sight of them caused great excitement among Master's Negroes. Imagine a mass of uneducated people shedding tears and yelling at the top of their voices in anguish. The victims were to take cars at a station called Clarkson Turnout, which was about four miles from Master's place. The excitement was so great that the overseer and driver could not control the relatives and friends of those that were going away, as a large crowd of both old and young went down to the depot to see them off. Louisiana was considered by the slaves a place of slaughter, so those who were going did not expect to see their friends again. While passing along, many of the Negroes left their master's fields and joined us as we marched to the cars. Some were yelling and wringing their hands while others were singing little hymns that they had been accustomed to for the consolation of those that were going away, such as, When we all meet in heaven, 
there is no parting there. When we all meet in heaven, there is parting no more. We arrived at the depot and had to wait for the cars to bring the others from the Sumterville jail, but they soon came in sight, and when the noise of the cars had died away, we heard wailing and shrieks from those in the cars. While some were weeping, others were fiddling, picking banjo, and dancing as they used to do in their cabins on the plantations. Those who were so merry had very bad masters, and even though they stood a chance of being sold to one as bad or even worse, yet they were glad to be rid of the one they knew. While the cars were at the depot, a large crowd of white people gathered, laughing and talking about the prospect of Negro traffic. But when the cars began to start, and the conductor cried out, All who are going on this train must get on board without delay. The colored people cried out with one voice, as though the heavens and earth were coming together, and it was so pitiful that those hard-hearted white men, who had been accustomed to driving slaves all their lives, shed tears like children. As the cars moved away, we heard the weeping and wailing from the slaves, as far as human voice could be heard, and from that time to the present I have neither seen nor heard from my two sisters, nor any of those who left Clarkson Depot on that memorable day. THE WAY SLAVES LIVED Most of the cabins in the time of slavery were built so as to contain two families. Some had partitions, while others had none. When there were no partitions, each family would fit up its own part as it could. Sometimes they got old boards and nailed them up, stuffing the cracks with rags. When they could not get boards, they hung up old clothes. When the family increased, the children all slept together, both boys and girls, until one got married. Then a part of another cabin was assigned to that one, but the rest would have to remain with their mother and father, as in childhood unless they could get with some of their relatives or friends who had small families, or unless they were sold. But, of course, the rules of modesty were held in some degrees by the slaves, while it could not be expected that they could entertain the highest degree of it, on account of their condition. A portion of the time the young men slept in the apartment known as the kitchen, and the young women slept in the room with their mother and father. The two families had to use one fireplace. One who was accustomed to the way in which the slaves lived in their cabins could tell as soon as they entered whether they were friendly or not, for when they did not agree, the fires of the two families did not meet on the hearth, but there was a vacancy between them. That was a sign of disagreement. In a case of this kind, when either of the families stole a hog, cow, or sheep from the master, he had to carry it to some of his friends for fear of being betrayed by the other family. On one occasion, a man who lived with one unfriendly, stole a hog, killed it, and carried some of the meat home. He was seen by some one of the other family, who reported him to the overseer, and he gave the man a severe whipping. Some time afterward, this man, who had been betrayed, thought he would get even with his enemy. So about two months later he killed another hog, and after eating a part of it, stole into the apartment of the other family, and hid a portion of the meat among the old clothes. Then he told the overseer that he had seen the man go out late that night, and that he had not come home until the next morning. When he did come home, he had called his wife to the window, and she had taken something in. He did not know what it was, but if the overseer would go there right away, he would find it. The overseer went and searched and found the meat, so the man was whipped. He told the overseer that the other man put it in his apartment while the family were away but the overseer told him that every man must be responsible for his own apartment. 
No doubt you would like to know how the slaves could sleep in their cabins in summer, when it was so very warm. When it was too warm for them to sleep comfortably, they all slept under trees, until it grew too cool, that is, along in the month of October. Then they took up their beds and walked. Joe and the Turkey Joe was a boy who was waiter to his master, one Mr. King, and he and his wife were very fond of company. Mrs. King always had chickens and turkey for dinner, but at one time the company was so large that they did not leave anything for the servants. So that day, finding that all had been eaten, while mistress and master were busy with the company, Joe killed a turkey, dressed it, and put it into the pot. But as he did not cut it up, the turkey's knees stuck out of the pot, and, as he could not cover them up, he put one of his shirts over them. When Mrs. King called Joe, he answered, but did not go right away as he generally did. And when he did go, his mistress said, Joe, what was the matter with you? He answered, Nuffin, missus. Then he went and opened the gate for the company. Soon after, Joe was back in the kitchen again, and Mrs. King went down to see what he was doing. Seeing the pot on, she said, Joe, what is in that pot? He said, Nuffin, missus, but my shirt. I'm going to wash it. She did not believe him so she took a fork and stuck it in the pot, taking out the shirt, and she found the turkey. She asked him how the turkey had got into the pot. He said he did not know, but reckoned the turkey got it himself, as the fowls were very fond of going into the kitchen. So Joe was whipped because he allowed the turkey to get into the pot. The Custom of Christmas Both masters and slaves regarded Christmas as a great day. When the slaveholders had made a large crop, they were pleased and gave the slaves from five to six days, which were much enjoyed by the Negroes, especially by those who could dance. Christmas morning was held sacred, both by master and slaves, but in the afternoon, or in a part of the next day, the slaves were required to devote themselves to the pleasure of their masters. Some of the masters would buy presents for the slaves, such as hats and tobacco for the men, handkerchiefs and little things for the women. These things were given after they had been pleased with them, after either dancing or something, for their amusement. When the slaves came up to their masters and mistresses, the latter would welcome them. The men would take off their hats and bow, and the women would make a low curtsy. There would be two or three large pails filled with sweetened water, with a gallon or two of whiskey in each. This was dealt out to them until they were partly drunk. While this was going on, those who could talk very well would give tokens of well-wishing to their master and mistress, and some who were born in Africa would sing some of their songs, or tell different stories of the customs in Africa. After this, they would spend half a day in dancing in some large cotton house or on a scaffold, the master providing fiddlers who came from other plantations, if there were none on the place, and who received from fifteen to twenty dollars on these occasions. A great many of the strict members of the church who did not dance would be forced to do it to please their masters. The favorite tunes were The Fisher's Hornpipe, the Devil's Dream, and Black-Eyed Susan. No one can describe the intense emotion in the Negro's soul on those occasions when they were trying to please their masters and mistresses. After the dancing was over, we had our presents, master giving to the men and mistress to the women. Then the slaves would go to their quarters and continue to dance the rest of the five or six days, and would sometimes dance until eight o'clock Sunday morning. The cabins were mostly made of logs, and there were large cracks in them, so that a person could see the light in them for miles in the night, and, of course, the sun's rays would shine through them in the daytime.
so on Sunday morning, when they were dancing and did not want to stop, you would see them filling up the cracks with old rags. The idea was that it would not be Sunday inside if they kept the sun out, and thus they would not desecrate the Sabbath, and these things continued until the freedom of the slaves. Perhaps my readers would like to know if most of the Negroes were inclined to violate the Sabbath. They were. As the masters would make them do unnecessary work, they got into the habit of disregarding the day as one for rest, and they did many things Sunday that would not be allowed in the North. At that time, if you should go through the South on those large cotton and rice plantations, while you would find some dancing on Sunday, others would be in the woods and fields hunting rabbits and other game, and some would be killing pigs belonging to their masters or neighbors. I remember when a small boy and I went into the woods one Sunday morning with one of my fellow Negroes, whose name was Munson, but we called it Pash, and we killed one of Master's pigs, hid it under the leaves until night, then took it home and dressed it. That was the only time I killed a pig, but I knew of thousands of cases like this in the time of slavery. But thank God the year of Jubilee has come, and the Negroes can return from dancing, from hunting, and from the Master's pig pens on Sundays, and become observers of the Sabbath, of good moral habits, and men of equal rights before the law. End of section 4 Recording by Kevin Kenley in El Desemboque, Sonora, Mexico.